so we're I'm starting a new theme um, this fall. We had been spending most of this year since January going through one of Ajahn Sumedho's books. It's really was nice. I enjoyed it. I think maybe some of you did too. And I thought for the fall, what I would do is um, do a series of talks on the seven. It's, they're called the seven enlightenment factors or factors of awakening. And these are the wholesome qualities that one person, a person, finds in their mind when uh, the mind is in balance and when insight arises. When we see something that we normally don't see, when the mind is in that place, it's, it's important or interesting to know, well, what are those qualities that come into balance that allow the mind to see things that it doesn't otherwise see? And in the way the Buddha formulated these factors of mind, he had three energizing factors, and three tranquilizing factors, and a neutral factor. And the neutral factor is mindfulness, and the three energizing factors, investigation or wholesome interest, um, energy, and rapture or joy. So these are the energizing factors. And the calming or tranquilizing factors are tranquility, concentration or one-pointedness, and equanimity. So over the course of the next three months or so, I'll cover each of these seven factors, spend a couple weeks on each of these factors, beginning with mindfulness, which is the neutral factor. Mindfulness is neither energizing or calming, or it's both energizing and calming, just depending. But the interesting thing about mindfulness is it's the factor of mind that actually allows things to come into balance because mindfulness sees things. And so one, one of the things it sees is whether the mind is out of balance. If we know the mind is out of balance, then it, it's almost like has its own feedback mechanism. For example, just a sort of obvious thing that I'm sure we've all noticed, we're going through our day and we notice we're really kind of overhyped. Well, just seeing that can be a cause for things settling down. Or if we see the mind is really dull, maybe slightly depressed, just seeing that clearly can actually set emotions uh, a corrective mechanism. No, it also can set emotions something else, like judgment, you know, hating ourselves because we're dull or depressed. But that's not mindfulness, that's judgment. Mindfulness is just seeing it for what it is. And then often there's a wholesome response to seeing things that brings, tends towards balance. But you can just see for yourself. So tonight I want to talk about mindfulness in maybe the most uh, basic sense. And you know, here at Common Ground and, and in general in the Western Buddhist tradition, Mindfulness is sometimes used as a generic word to summarize all of the Buddhist teachings. You know, we call this a path of awareness or a path of mindfulness. But mindfulness also has a more technical meaning. So I'll try to be, at least in the next few weeks, more specific, talking about mindfulness as a particular factor in the mind, as opposed to mindfulness as a more general term referring to this path that the Buddha talk, talked about. And uh, 
to do that, it's good to start with the main uh, talk that the Buddha gave on mindfulness. It's one of the most well-known of the Buddha's discourses. And in Asia, where Buddhism is not, not only a, a spiritual practice, like a mystical practice tradition, but it also exists as a folk religion. So as a folk religion, you know, uh, people use things in different ways, and they use this particular talk as kind of a healing prayer. And, and they might not, you know, the sort of typical layperson might not even know what the words mean, because they might be chanting it in Pali, and they may speak Thai, or, you know, they might speak Lao, or, or uh, Cambodian, or Burmese, or um, Sri Lankan. Which is the language in Sri Lanka? Sinhalese. So they might, but they learn this as kids, as young adults, as adults. They learn these chants, and that, and it's interesting that in the folk Buddhist tradition, this particular chant on mindfulness is considered one of the most protecting healing chants. So if somebody were were really sick, they might do this chant as a sort of protection. And the, the chant opens with the Buddha saying, O practitioners, there is a most wonderful way to help living beings realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, and pain and anxiety, travel the right path, and realize freedom. This way is the four establishments of mindfulness. And then the Buddha goes on to teach the four establishments. Basically, it's mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of the mind. And the way he gets to four is mindfulness of the body is one, and then he breaks down the mind into three categories. You know, mindfulness of feelings, the feeling tone in the mind, mindfulness of the sort of quality of the mind, like is it the mind colored with greediness, or is it colored with fear, or is it colored with love or patience, right? You know how it is. Our mind there's often a filter in our mind that we're sort of living through or seeing through. So that's, and then also mindfulness of the particular factors that are present in the mind, like the seven awakening factors that I'll be talking about. So, but basically, the Buddhist teaching mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of the mind. So that's, that's the easy way to remember that. And he's, you know, he's pretty direct about the benefits that this path of mindfulness is the path of purification, overcoming grief and sorrow, ending pain and anxiety, traveling the path towards freedom. And then a little later in that discourse, the Buddha says, if a practitioner dwells contemplating the body and mind ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful, having put aside craving and aversion, or we could say having put aside reactivity for the world, for all experience. So basically this is the path. So here we are in our life contemplating the body and mind. That just means our experience. Because when the Buddha says body, He's referring to the five physical senses. So not just the tactile experience of the body, 
that seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and the tactile experience. That's contemplating body, knowing those five physical senses. And then knowing the mind, of course, is everything else. All the images, thoughts, concepts, that's mind. Emotions, although emotions sort of cross the line. There's a physical component to emotion, as you probably have discovered, and a mental. So the path, then, is described this way. A practitioner dwells contemplating the body and mind. And then he tells you how to contemplate the body and mind ardently. So ardently means with a, a wholeheartedness, so not in a casual way. But uh, maybe we could say as our life, as if our life depended on it, that this is the most important thing to be contemplating the body and mind, the present moment experienced, right? Because is there anything in the present moment that isn't the body and mind? So by this definition, there's not. So. When the Buddha says contemplating the body and the mind, he could have just as easily said contemplating experience or contemplating all of existence or contemplating the world. Because with this definition, what's outside of the body and mind? What's outside of the five physical senses and the mind? Right? There's nothing else that can be known, right? So this is the full range of what can be known. The Buddha is asking us to contemplate it ardently so that's that wholeheartedness, that, that powerful commitment. This is number one priority. And then clearly comprehending. So we make the commitment to clearly comprehend. So the way that we're contemplating it is we have the intention to understand the experience as it, as it actually is, to clearly understand it not to just assume that it's what we thought it was, like my breath is just what I thought it is, or being here at Kamagran is just what I think it should be. So we ha we're not confused by our, our uh, concepts or our ideas, but we're clearly comprehending it as a moment-to-moment -moment happening. And then ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful. Mindful means, and in this case, this is the more the technical or specific definition of mindfulness, which is a not forgetting. That means as we're ardent, wholehearted, and, and really with the intention of understanding, clearly comprehending what it is that's arising or happening in the moment, then there's this third component, which is a not forgetting. So this is the continuity. So it's not like we're here, really committed, and then we're, try, we're remembering a movie we saw last night or thinking about what we're going to do tomorrow. And then we're back here. So this mindfulness is a not forgetting what it is that we're comprehending or that we're contemplating. So we're contemplating what's predominant, what's happening in the moment. And we're not spacing out. There's a continuity. So those are the three components. And to do that, and to, to be able to do that, the Buddha tells us, having put aside craving or aversion for the world. Another way we could say that is having put aside any reactivity to our experience. Because if we react to something that's being known or that's happening, 
that is that break in concentration. That means we don't have continuity. So if I'm here contemplating the breath ardently, clearly comprehending the breath as a physical happening, mindful, not forgetting, you know, and then a doubt arises. Am I doing the practice right? Well, that doubt, that's a break. That's a break in the continuity. So we have to put aside doubt, aversion, <laughs> greed, like even the thought, I really want to be continuous. That's also a break. So whatever we're contemplating, we try to have, for periods of time at least, an unbroken contemplation, uh, not forgetting of what we're paying attention to. Now, it doesn't mean that we're just going to have one object in meditation. I'm sure you recognize that when you're sitting, you might be with the breath for a few seconds or maybe even longer, and then there's pain. So, so I'm talking about a, a period of our meditation period, or meditation sit where they, like it's a good sit, so there's real continuity. So we might have some seconds where we're really intimate, aware of the breath, the sensations of touching as the air comes in, sensations of touching as the air goes out, or if you're feeling your breath in the belly, feeling the belly expanding as the breath comes in, contracting as the breath goes out. So maybe we're able to have some continuity for four or five or ten breaths, and then maybe there's some pain in the back. And that pain arises, and it's predominant. It's not something we can ignore by returning to the breath. So we let the attention go to the pain in the back. Pain is like this. And there's some continuity with the pain. Ardent, clearly comprehending the pain as pain, as intense sensation. Aching is like this, or stabbing is like this, or twisting is like this, or burning is like this, or achiness or hardness is like this. So this is the clearly comprehending. That clearly comprehending means we're not like looking at it from a distance, oh, my back hurts. Well, that's just a concept or a story. It's not the actual experience of achiness or burning or twisting or stabbing or you know, the prickly, needle-like sensation. So all the different possibilities, we're actually knowing how it is right now, and then not forgetting that. And then all of a sudden, maybe we notice hating the pain, like not liking the pain. Then we can be mindful of that mental reaction to the pain. So even that isn't a break in continuity. The mindfulness notices that now what's predominant is the mental reaction to having pain in the back. And then we're aware of that. Ah, not liking pain is like this. Being afraid of the pain in the back is like this. Hating, hating, hating. And maybe just no noticing the mental reaction of hate or not liking may, is the cause for it to diminish. Okay? And then that allows us to return to the breath. Because now there's no predominant reaction in the mind then nothing big is happening. We just go back to our basic anchor. So we feel the body sitting, and right there in the body sitting, we notice the breath coming back in. Either here in the belly, here at the nostrils, or wherever you, it's easy for you to feel the breath in the body. And then we connect, sustaining the attention with that wholeheartedness, clearly comprehending the movement of the breath as a physical phenomenon. 
So not imagining the breath with the mind or having an idea of the breath, but actually feeling sensation related to the breathing process, feeling sensation related to the exhalation and then the inhalation. For as much continuity, for as many breaths, half breaths as we can, until something strongly predominant arises. Now, there may be a lot of little distractions. If they're just little distractions, just keep tethering, bringing the attention back to the breath. Let those little distractions happen in the background. The sound of the jet, the sound of somebody sneezing. Those might be relatively minor distractions that are just little blips. You know, maybe they break the continuity just briefly, but then the attention can come right back to the object, the breath. But then when a more predominant distraction arises, uh, and what I mean by that, it would create tension to stay with the breath. So if you're finding that you're struggling to stay with the breath, then just maybe experiment by letting the attention go to where it wants to go. And then let that be your meditation object, whatever that is. Oh, thinking is like this. Now you're not getting lost in the thought, but in a sense you're stepping back and observing thoughts are just thoughts. And if there's an emotional charge to those thoughts, then instead of looking at the content, we're actually looking at the emotional charge. Oh, excitement is like this. Remembering is like this. Fear is like this. Often, if thinking is predominant, then there's usually a charge, right? Otherwise, thoughts kind of uh, don't really have much charge. And generally, for most of us, there's going to be thinking continuing because there's just so much momentum to this part of the mind that just spins out thoughts. So don't worry if those thoughts continue. Just ignore them keep coming back to the breath or whatever's predominant. But when there's a charge, a strong charge with the thoughts, then look at the thinking as thinking and then immediately look at the charge, because actually the charge is more important than the content. What's the feeling tone associated with those thoughts? Is it a kind of a judgment or a hating, like uh, disliking? Is it a, an attraction, an excitement, a hope, a wanting? So on that end of the spectrum, on the fear, aversion, irritation, boredom, doubt end of the spectrum, or there's another you know, possibility, like the doubting, like the confusion, not, not being clear, dull, you know, and, and just sort of being off balance because things aren't clear. So that's also a feeling tone that we can have or a particular flavor. So we can look at the particular flavor of the mental content without getting confused by the actual content of the thoughts. Okay? This is the basic instruction that the Buddha gave in his Satipatthana Sutta, the, the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness or the four establishments of mindfulness. Or like I said, you could just simplify by saying mindfulness of the body and mind. Mindfulness of the five physical senses and the mind. That's basically the path. Now the Buddha taught many things that supports this basic path. So. It's too simplistic to say the only thing the Buddha taught was mindfulness. It's not really true. But he taught mindfulness and all the things that support waking up. And this path of waking up is in the service of freedom. 
freeing the mind up so that what's expressed in our life is wisdom and compassion. He didn't teach directly wisdom and compassion. He taught what leads to wisdom and compassion. You know, if you generate, if you lead a life that, that supports awareness, clarity, this ardency, this clear comprehension, this not forgetting, not getting caught in reactions, then this naturally leads to wisdom and compassion. And then at the end of this discourse, he goes on to talk about how you pay attention to the body, how you pay attention to the mind, many pages, uh, you know, in, the, in this talk. But then at the very end of the talk, he says, if you do this for seven years, and then he, he kind of backs up, he says, if you do this for, you know, six years, five years, two years, one year, seven months, six months, keeps all the way down to, if you do this just for seven days, if you're mindful like this, ardently, clearly comprehending things as they are, mindful, not forgetting, without getting caught in aversion, without getting caught in the reaction of greed, if you do this for seven days, you can expect one of two results. Either full liberation right now and here, or with the stage of enlightenment that the Buddha calls uh, a non-returner, meaning you still got a little unfinished business, but basically your days are numbered, meaning it won't be long before your heart is completely free of its self-centered tendencies. Because that's really the direction. The awareness reveals all of the self-centered habits of the mind and body, of the mind, really. And that revelation, seeing those habits, those self-centered habits of greed or fear or aversion, is how they get uprooted. You have to see them in order to uproot them. And he's saying, this is a way of inspiring us. If we can do this for seven days, then we'll be free. Now, if you've tried, and all of you I'm sure have, you realize it's not so easy to be mindful in one moment, let alone for a 30-minute sit, let alone for a day, let alone for seven days. So it is inspiring to think only seven days, but uh, we have to be content with just a moment. And what's important, when we have a moment of mindfulness, of this real commitment to the present moment, and we're not just committed, but there's this very specific intention to clearly comprehend the moment. So the whole point is to understand it, the moment. So we're not just there in a passive way. This clear comprehension is a is a like a, a, a real intention to want to see it as it is, not to just take it in a superficial way, but to get right to the uh, to get beyond our superficial ideas of what it is, but to see it in a... Sometimes we could use the word uh, bear attention as a way of suggesting that the mind is seeing things beyond its interpretation. So like, what is the breath without any ideas of what a breath is? Or what is the experience of a sound of a bird without the concept of bird without the concept of Mark hearing something? What is the experience of walking without the idea 
of a body. No, I'm not saying there's, there is or there isn't a body. I'm just saying that the idea of a body isn't getting in the way of understanding the experience of walking. So this is what we mean by intimacy or, or a moment of bare attention or clearly comprehending. And the not forgetting is really then, it's really what supports that clear comprehension is the continuity. It's not just one moment of being present, but if we can, have, if we can string together moments of non-distraction, then that, in a sense, is like a sinking in that is that clear comprehension moving beyond our concepts into the experience as it actually is. And this is what's so hard as human beings. We are so in the habit of interpreting our lives to ourselves and, you know, that ongoing narration. Either we're doing it out loud by talking to one another or listening to things, or even if we're not around anybody and not listening to anybody, you know, through or earphones, or whatever we might be using, then we just were endlessly narrating our life to ourselves. Even if we say things like, I'm just sitting here meditating. <laughs> you know, we even feel like we have to tell ourselves, okay, I'm breathing in. Okay, I'm breathing out. So, we get confused by this endless interpretation or endless narration that is going on in our mind. Because what happens is, when there's thought, then it's like a projection. That concept is like a, a projection in the mind, and it's confusing. We see the concept of Mark giving a talk or being at Common Ground, and that concept of Common Ground or Mark or talk or Buddhism, it actually gets in the way of just being here or even in the way of the meaning of the word sort of landing. We think that we have to be a somebody listening to this talk at Common Ground in order to, for this event to be meaningful. But actually, this event can be meaningful without being confused by any thoughts of Common Ground, any thoughts of listening to talk on Buddhism, any thoughts of me being a good meditator or a new meditator or a bad meditator. See, all of these thoughts are actually diluting. They're keeping us from a more direct experience of being here now. So the, the path of mindfulness is really tricky in this way. This is a different way of being there's an old, uh, somewhat clever meditation story, teaching story about a couple of students arguing with one another and about what the practice is really about, what spiritual life is really about. And so they decide to go see the teacher. And they go up to her and they say, the first student says to her, the teacher, isn't it true, teacher, that spiritual life is about making effort? We have to make effort to purify our actions, to overcome our habits of being greedy and angry, to cultivate generosity, to learn to concentrate the mind, purify our bad habits. It's all about making real effort to purify. And the teacher, she says, yep, you're right. And then the other student says, you know, he's kind of 
What do you mean? <laughs> Practice spiritual life is about letting go. It's about trusting. If I make the effort to purify my life, I'm just reinforcing my ego, the sense of I'm in charge, I'm becoming a holy person. That can't be the path. The path is letting go, trusting, trusting the divine, trusting the way that it is, the Dhamma. And the teacher looks at him and says, you're right. <laughs> and another student who just happened to be around and heard the other two students said, they can't both be right. And the teacher says, you're right. <laughs> so it's really confusing. As soon as we get on the level of Buddhism or a spiritual path, and one person says one thing, another person says another, each of us can talk about spiritual path from a lot of different angles. And, and in that moment, for us, that angle might be absolutely right. But it doesn't capture the whole path. There's another famous kind of teaching story. I think this is actually from one of the Buddhist discourses, or from the time of the Buddha at least, about several blind people uh, touching an elephant. And they're told to describe the elephant. Maybe you've heard this story before. And one is at the back of the elephant and gets a hold of the tail, you know, and describes this thing that looks a little, feels a little bit like a brush. And, uh, you know, this sort of like a whip with a brush at the end. And the other person's feeling one of the big legs of the elephant, you know, and it really feels like a very solid post, very strong pillar. You know, another's feeling the trunk, another's feeling the ear, another's feeling the side of the body. And because of the way our minds work, we immediately, in, in knowing that one thing, we get lost in our interpretation. We come to conclusions. We define the experience. And so then if the six or whatever blind people are asked to come to some conclusion about what it is this, ele is this elephant, you know, they could spend a very long time arguing because they have different experiences. So, but there is something that we can come to con a consensus on in our spiritual path. And that's this quality of simple presence that's really at the root of, of spiritual life, certainly from a Buddhist point of view. And this is why this sutta, this discourse the Buddha gave on mindfulness is considered so, on the one hand, to people who actually meditate, it's considered incredibly practical and useful, like a really great set of instructions. It's like it's the only Dharma talk we need, and we can read it to ourselves, and it's available. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of nice. We don't really need a different Dharma talk. I mean, it's nice to hear different Dharma talks because we can feel inspired and get sort of like wholesome entertainment. But actually, <laughs> but actually the only Dharma talk we need is this talk on the Satipatthana, the uh, foundations of mindfulness, how to be mindful of the body and mind. So on the one hand, it's like really practical. And on the other hand, for people who, for whatever reason, don't think it's for them to, be, to actually do spiritual practice, but are very devoted, devoted or devotional, then they use it as 
you know, like a pointing to the truth, but they're not so interested in walking that path right now. Just like in all religious traditions, there's a whole, uh, you know, so many people find it valuable to worship holy teachings without being necessarily that interested in putting them into practice or trying to understand what the teachings are, even. So, you know, we might put the holy teachings in a beautiful book and put those beautiful book or that beautiful book in a beautiful little container or build a nice temple or mosque or church, cathedral around the holy books. So we do a lot of that, in, even in Buddhism, of course, too. But what's really useful in all the traditions and in Buddhism to really find these practical teachings and then put them into, put them into practice. Really see the effects of putting these teachings into practice. And so in terms of the elephant, so you know, what is this common denominator for the elephant, this elephant story? Well, even though they might have had different experiences given what they were touching, what was similar is like what, how they were able to understand what they came to understand. The process of waking up or knowing was exactly the same for everybody. What was known was different. But the knowing, the process of knowing, the activity of knowing was the same. And so this is something to contemplate. And this is something to, uh, to appreciate that this, in a way, is our common ground. This capacity that humans and perhaps non-humans have to contemplate things as they are. Or to, you know, it may sound a little dramatic to you, but to know the truth of things. To open to the truth. Now, in Buddhism, we might, you know, capitalize the word truth, but it's not this truth that we're opening to, the Dhamma that we're opening to, or Dharma, the Sanskrit word is Dharma, the Pali word is Dhamma, this truth, things as they are that we open to, isn't something extraordinary. Or it's extraordinary only because we're so distracted. We're so in our interpretations and concepts that we're not actually in the moment. You know, how many times have we walked through the beautiful woods, a beautiful park, lost in our thoughts, not aware of the shimmering experience of being alive. This, it's really the mystery is right here. You know, or as teachers say sometimes, you know, what we're looking for is in the looking. So it's not even about being in the pretty park that's holy, but it's in the looking itself that's holy. Because what we find as, we're, as we begin to understand the experience of mindfulness or a moment of full presence is right there is the freedom. Any moment, this is you can use this as a working hypothesis, any moment of full presence or simple presence or mindfulness, any moment of clear uh, awareness 
is a moment of real freedom. Not theoretical freedom, meaning that in that moment, the heart is released, the heart is unburdened. So this is an important barometer for us as we go through our day practicing mindfulness, as we do our formal sitting practice every day or most days, for whatever time that we have to do it, where we actually sit down in a chair or sit down in a cushion and establish, as the Buddha says in the sutta, he says, you know, find a quiet hut or a big tree to sit under, sitting cross-legged or sitting upright in some way that's comfortable. And then he says, establish mindfulness in front of yourself. Meaning, establish awareness right here in this moment. So if we do that, Ardently, that means we're committing, in this moment at least, we're committing our whole life to this activity. That's what ardent is. Clearly comprehension, that means we're committing toward or for this intention of knowing things as they are. With, and the mindfulness is the not forgetting. So then we're doing this moment by moment. So not just in a moment, but they we're stringing some moments together. That is the experience of the freedom that we really want. This is the release we want. Now, we don't know often, most of us have touched this, but we don't understand what we've touched. So we don't know in a clear way, like we can't really take a hold or look at a memory of this kind of freedom. Because even though probably we've all touched this freedom, this kind of freedom doesn't fit our concepts. So we tend to dismiss it, or we tend to tell ourselves a story about it. And the story generally has very little to do with the actual experience. Because this experience has nothing to do with the particular conditions. So back to the elephant story, it has nothing to do whether we're touching a trunk, or touching the tail, or even touching the dung of the elephant. Because we might think that the person who gets to touch, you know, something interesting like this, the trunk, you know, he's lucky, you know, the person who has to touch the back end, and not so lucky. So in the same way, we might think because I'm having a difficult time in my life, like I have a lot of back pain, or it's too cold, or I've got a lot of unpleasant sensations or a painful memory, that that's not, that can't be suitable for a moment of liberation. And the person who's having a lot of nice sensations, maybe a lot of kind of feeling of lightness in the body or even light in the mind, one of those sort of classic meditation experiences where you're seeing light that we sometimes read about. We think, oh, that person, they have every advantage. They're going to have a moment of liberation. But actually, any moment will do. Literally, any moment, it has... This is the definition, or this is the direction of this liberation, is it's a liberation that's not dependent on conditions. So we're dropping into a freedom that exists always, at all times, and any conditions. Because this is in the knowing, not in the known. Or one way we think about it is there is the activity of the heart, the activity of our life, and then there's the space of the heart, or the space of the now. And 
what we're waking up to is the space of the heart or the heart itself, not the activity of the heart, the activity of our lives. And the basic problem from the Buddhist point of view is our ignorance. You know, he says the cause of suffering is ignorance. And then he defines ignorance is the mind or the heart gets fixated on the activity of our lives. It looks for happiness, it looks for release, it looks for fulfillment in the conditions. That means these six things, the body, the five physical senses, and the activity in the mind, our thoughts and concepts and images. So we're looking for satisfaction or fulfillment in these things, and the Buddha says, this is not the place to look for fulfillment because these six things are not in our control and are constantly changing. So even if you end up with a good set of these six things, you know, like pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant smells, pleasant physical sensations, whatever that fifth one is that I'm forgetting, and pleasant thoughts, they're not going to, you know, that constellation of pleasant experiences, conditions, it's not going to last. We're not in control. So the Buddha says the basic ignorance is we're always looking here for our satisfaction or fulfillment. And because of that, we're always frustrated and stressed out because it's constantly in flux. And so if we can learn to drop this fixation and to open to what's not those six things. And because this is all that we know, we, even if we create a word for what's not those six things, what's not the body and mind, you know, we can call it God or the divine, or in Buddhism we say, you know, Dhamma, things as they are, or Buddha nature. But, you know, then that's a word that we can get attached to and seek fulfillment from. It's a concept. So we have to be careful about the word. But, but the Buddha was very clear, and Teacher Sensen have been very clear about the path, which is, it's in the knowing. It's not in the known. It's in the knowing. It's in the activity of opening, not what we're opening to. It doesn't matter whether we're opening to the inhalation or opening to pain in the back or opening to difficult emotion or memory or opening to calmness and happiness. But as long as we don't get fixated on what we're opening to, the condition, then we can wake up to the experience of opening or to the space in which everything is known. And that's where we find the freedom, the release. And this is an intuitive opening. And this is what we need to understand about mindfulness or about this path of awakening. It's in the knowing. And so this is why the activity of mindfulness is so useful and why it's even useful to contemplate what mindfulness is and not isn't. So instead of wondering whether the surge was successful or not, you know, if we want to think, if we want to have a conversations with our friends, then what we can contemplate or talk about with our friends is, what is the nature of mindfulness? What is the essential nature of being present? Apart from what is being known, what is the actual experience of knowing? 
apart from what is being known? What is the activity of opening the heart, opening the mind to what is? Because then we begin to have an intuitive sense of the space that's always here. And this is the space of liberation or the space of freedom. Now, I know that sounds a little highfalutin, like, wow, I don't, I'm here now, but where's that freedom? Where's the release of the heart? Well, if you're honest with yourself, you see that your mind is fixated on a condition. And as long as our minds are fixating, attaching, clinging to any of the conditions in the present moment, we'll miss the liberation, we'll miss the release. The release comes in the non-fixation, the non-clinging, the non-attaching to the particular conditions that are arising in this moment. So we need that profound equanimity or non-attachment, which means we have to take refuge in the knowing, in the space of here and now, not in the activity, not in the conditions of the here and now. And that's why it's a practice. This is not our habit, right? So we have to practice letting go. But letting go doesn't mean we're pushing the conditions away. Letting go means we're opening to the conditions, but in that opening, we're not getting lost in the conditions. We're recognizing this capacity of openness, of knowing, of spaciousness, of allowing everything to come and go, everything to be known. So we're taking refuge in the knowing not in the now. So I'll leave it here so we have some time to check in with one another about what I've said or any questions in terms of your practice or any experiences you have maybe in like moments of this uh, not being caught by the conditions but a more uh, a kind of a intuitive experience of freedom or release that, that you've noticed at moments in your life that you'd like to share with the group or the opposite, <laughs> moments of attachment and clinging. So what comes to mind? Stan? When you speak about the heart, where are you pointing to? I get the sense of space and not being attached, but I suspect you're pointing to something more than that. Yeah, I, I define it a couple different ways, but, but one way that's useful to begin with is when we suffer, or when we're happy, free from suffering, we have a sense of locating the experience of suffering and the freedom from suffering someplace. So that location is the heart. And so then, in that place where there's happiness and suffering, then what is that place free of whether there's suffering or happiness there? What is the place, not what's in the place? Does that help? So the heart is the space. You could, you know, in a simple way, we could say the space of our life, the space of our experience, free of the activity of our life or the activity of our experience. What I hear is the relating in a non-attached way. Yeah, not getting confused by what's there the activity that's there. Thanks for clarifying that with that question. Other comments that people have?
Yeah. Do you have an example? Mm-hmm. Do you have an, uh, a personal example? Uh, I do, but I don't know. Like my wife was in a car accident and lost her left hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you think. Because those traumatic experiences are outside of the stories that we live inside of. And they're, they're just like a kind of medicine that, uh, for at least a period of time, basically make it impossible for those stories to work. So all of a sudden the mind is without any stories that work. And what's left is that brilliant clarity, even in the midst of a tragedy. Because we don't have any convenient story to fill up the space. So we're just there with things as they are. So yeah, that that's a really good point to make. Sometimes moments of awakening just happen. And uh, spiritual life is understanding how to set in motion a life that increases the probability of those moments of awakening, those moments of freedom. So we're just... Uh, making choices that increases the probability of those moments. Like sitting and just being present with the breath, for example, might support that. What else comes to mind? Mm-hmm. Gabe? reflections. Yeah, and I think uh, I don't, I'm not so much uh, going to comment on the Christian way because it's pretty diverse. You know, different churches are different, different uh, traditions, Christian traditions are different. But I think your, your comment about Buddhism is about, is about right, that traditionally speaking, at least, in terms of the, the actual teachings of the Buddha, he would emphasize um, discovering this place of liberation or this place of, uh, of non-attachment and then notice what arises from that like notice what kind of notice the way your life expresses itself when you're more in that place as opposed to in the attached place 
And you might see that it's just a, a wonderful kind of activism, that the heart, what arises out of the heart, or what arises out of our life, is a lot of skillful action. Not passivity, not indifference, and, and not kind of uh, anger, self-righteousness either, but skillfulness. And this skillfulness, what, we, what I think we discover is that we become more skillful, more uh, effective in terms of addressing suffering in the world, the more we do our own work. And if we don't do that work, we tend to simply reinforce what's already in the world, meaning we see some pain in the world, but we address that pain with our anger. We get angry at the pain, we get angry at the ignorance, and then we sow the, sow the seeds for more anger in the world, which is what is already creating so much suffering. So this is what happens, you know, and it doesn't mean that people's intentions are completely impure who are, you know, marching for peace. It's not that at all. And it doesn't even mean we have to postpone all of our activism. It's more of a shift of priorities. So instead of the priority being to eliminate poverty on the planet, it could be that that intention to eliminate poverty is that now in the context of understanding that what really needs to be eliminated is greed. And let me start right here in my heart. How does this heart get free of greed? When I really understand that, I might be able to live in a way that sort of uh, supports other beings being free of greed. So it's really getting at the basic cause instead of the, the surface problem. You know, like any good doctor, a good doctor would want to get at the actual cause of the illness as opposed to just taking care of the symptom, which might be poverty or war. Now, I'm not saying that we should avoid all things, because sometimes you've got to address the symptoms before you can do this deeper work. If we're living in a war zone, it's not going to be easier to do this deeper spiritual work. So the first thing we might need to do is resolve the war, or to resolve the fact that there's not enough food for people. But when we have the conditions to do this deeper work, it's, it's, it's even more important. And the Buddha addressed this directly. And I, I know this is shocking for people, but you know, he talked about generosity and he said, if you feed somebody for one day, you take care of their hunger for one day. If you teach somebody a skill, you take care of their hunger for their whole life. He, and then he goes on, he says, but if you realize fearlessness, basically this liberation, and you're able to sort of share that, then that the, the effect of that kind of generosity is the greatest kind. To, to be able to express fearlessness as a human being, in a way, is the most profound, um, skillful action in the world. And when we think about some of the great spiritual teachers, or just religious, political teachers, leaders in the world in history, they often had a kind of fearlessness. like a devotion to a noble cause that wasn't affected by fear. Like their commitment was relatively beyond fear. And that gave them a lot of power to, for positive change. So how do we get beyond fear and greed? 
you know, where they're not in it for their own glory and they're not afraid of their own demise or even afraid of the whole cause falling apart, but they're just going to do what they can do. So this arises from an inner work. It doesn't, you know, you just can't find this, realize this by marching or by getting involved in the world. Because generally we get confused. The more we get involved in the world, unless we have a deep wisdom, we tend to get confused by all of the problems and all of the suffering. I mean, we can imagine like showing up in Iraq or showing up in Darfur or, or some place where there's a lot of poverty. And as a lot of people have in the past, with this idea of doing good, but really not doing good. Really, basically, uh, causing problems. Because we don't have enough inner clarity. So, a kind of humility. If we have a lot of humility, then we'll feel this movement to address suffering. But if that movement to address the suffering in the world is, uh, is there with a deep humility, like our own limitations, then we'll start right here with our own greed, our own fear, our own anger. And then the work, that work then leads us into the world. Well, we need to leave it here. So let's just take a few seconds, maybe take a couple breaths together. And it's okay to really let go of the words. Some of them have sunk in, others haven't. And we can just not worry about remembering anything. And reflect on our deepest aspiration. Perhaps we can reflect on living our lives for the benefit of all beings, without any particular plan, but just to hold this beautiful intention to live and practice in a way that supports the happiness and peace, the well-being of all beings without exception. May all beings be free from suffering and free from the root or causes of suffering. May all beings be at ease. Thanks again for coming.